Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock. You know, fire, combustibles, albums that bump eternally. And today we will be deep diving together into the cult classic 1971 album by Karen Dalton, In My Own Time. Take me to your darkest room. Close every window and lock every door. Turn to your neighbor and say, quote, I thank God I don't look like what I've been through, end quote. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that over the years. And more than an acknowledgement of the virtue of melanin, it is meant to suggest that whatever else a close read of your backstory might reveal, pain doesn't always show on your face. Because sometimes it shows up in your voice, as it did with Karen Dalton on her album for Paramount Records, In My Own Time. Karen Dalton sounded like what she'd been through. Raspy world weariness, longing and sadness, even on songs meant to be happy like Holland and Dozier's How Sweet It Is. Karen Dalton did two things for sure on this album. Uncovered pain on an album of covers and spent those covers strumming her pain with her fingers in blues in folk, in gospel, and in rock. And while we are gathered here today to sing its praises, In My Own Time didn't do much commercially, didn't garner much fiscally, $20,000 it's reported, and pushed Karen deeper into the darkness, a descent that saw her leaving for the country, near Woodstock, a town where stars had been born. What she left behind? Live blues and heartache, circumstances crueler than Kate, a snapshot of what pain does to the gifted, a legacy of a career interrupted. Mae West said, Once, it's better to be looked over than overlooked, which makes me wonder what obscurity cost Karen, the price she paid for us discovering her late, but in our own time. Take me to Siberia In My Own Time was the album pick of our guest today, music writer Jason Woodbury. He's perhaps best known for his work with Aquarium Drunkard, the long-running music blog that began around the same time as Soulsides did in the mid-2000s. And unlike most music blogs that began in the mid-2000s, is still around, not just surviving, (laughs) but thriving. Jason heads up the site's Transmissions podcast, as well as occasionally guest hosts for their Sirius XM show, and does many of their interviews and reviews when he's not also busy contributing to the likes of Pitchfork, Flood Magazine, and the LA Review of Books. Jason, welcome to Heat Rocks. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of this of this show. So glad to have you in the seat. So, as you know from this show, we have to ask at the beginning, why Karen Dalton and why this album? This is a record that just, it doesn't matter how many times I listen to it, it blows my mind every time. She's got such a unique voice. Um, There's so much you can hear about her character in her voice and in her music. So as far as why I wanted to pick this one, it's just the sort of record that I never get tired of listening to and then never get tired of talking about with people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just a mind-blowing record. Tell us how you came to know this album and if you remember purchasing this album at all, what form? Uh, it was definitely vinyl when I when Light in the Attic reissued this in, I think, 2006. I had a friend and mentor uh, named Chris Esty 
who was doing like publicity for Light in the Attic. And he sent me an email. Hey, you're going to want to check this record out. We're putting this lost classic out. And this is 2006, so the we're putting this lost classic out thing hadn't been said quite as frequently as it has since then. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll definitely check this out. He had mentioned to me that Devendra Banhart and Nick Mm -hmm. Cave were uh, in the liner notes. So that was all I needed to hear uh, as like a, a young music fan i was working at a record store zia records in tempe arizona and uh it was that like it's kind of like an amazing time in my life where i spent every night listening to records and watching movies and, and then i would wake up the next morning and do that until i had to go into work where i would show up and listen to records for eight hours and then go home and do the same thing so uh so so in my own time was one of those records that when i got a hold of it I just I couldn't stop listening to it. I couldn't stop like mm. evangelizing for it. I wanted mm. everybody I knew to listen to this record, to listen to her voice, to check out this. I mean, completely unique sounding voice. Um, I was really big, and there's a magazine at the time called Arthur Magazine. Yeah, headed up by uh, a guy named Jay Babcock, um, and it was like a free magazine that we had on the rack at the record store. And I would pick these issues up, and along with things like The Wire. Um, or, or Pitchfork or Tiny Mixtapes, you know, or Aquarium Drunkard and Soul Sides. You know, I would just like go over everything listed in the magazine and I would try to track something down and I would find a CD or an LP and listen to it. And Arthur was really focused on sort of the freak folk thing that was really blowing up at that time. And I loved that stuff. I loved, you know, Vetiver and, and Devendra Van Hart and Six Organs and Admittance, all these bands. And Karen to me sounded absolutely as radical and strange and arcane and uncanny as any of the stuff that was coming out from that sort of scene that was supposed to be psychedelic folk music, you know, which yeah. it, that stuff's great too. But Karen was like, she was the original in so yeah, many 30 ways. 30 years before what you're sure. talking about. Oh, yeah. 100%. But it, 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 it sounded so current to me, you yeah. know, stuff like Joanna Newsom. I would listen to that and then I would listen to Karen Dalton and I, I, I could hear the thread that was connecting these artists from, you know, across decades. But it's mine to use and the seabirds where the fear ones grew will flock with a fury and they will bury. I want to take a moment to shout out Light in the Attic because yeah. just as a music fan, their releases have done so much for me in not making me feel silly for releases that I might have missed but also providing all the background information that you need if you're reviving records that people probably should have gotten but didn't sure. get. So I just want to take a moment. Light in the Attic has come up many, many times yeah. on this show, so I want to shout them out. I don't know. Oliver has contributed to, to some of the releases, and just for me as a music fan, those releases have really helped me to feel like I'm in the know without making me feel silly for having missed it first time around. Right. I mean, just to go on this tangent, since you brought it up, Morgan, I feel like around the mid-2000s, between Light in the Attic and Numero Group, these were two, not identical by any means, but they moved in parallel in a lot of ways, and I think helped to redefine what a reissue label could do. And I think that previous to that, a lot of the more extensive things you would see really weren't necessarily coming from American um, reissue labels. I mean, Rhino was always in the mix on some level, but not necessarily on the level of obscurity. That was more of like a British thing almost. Sure. And then Numero and I think Light in the Attic both got their start around the same time about 15 years ago, and I think have really upped 
the the threshold for what a reissue label can yeah. do and, and the, the comprehensiveness they go about it. Yeah. Morgan, how did you discover Karen Tillman? You know, that's a trip. And and as I was trying to say in, in the intro that, you know, in prep for the chat, listening to this album, I was like, well, damn, you know, I missed this. And so the irony of coming to Karen's cover album through a cover of Karen Dalton, hmm. which was Wall, um, and I was just like, well, when I and I I actually saw that track on Pitchfork, and I think I was just trying to prepare for for a radio show, and I was like, well, this doesn't really go in your dance music set, but right. it's <laughs> but it's still fire, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a cover of something on your mind, and I was like, this is beautiful. Yeah. You can't make it without ever even Lead vocalist Lila Foy on that, and uh, that was a revelation. Mm. Um, until that point, I had never heard of Karen Dalton. This yeah. was my introduction, yeah. and what an introduction it was. I think for me, I mean, I'm in the same boat as, as you, Morgan, which is um, I didn't listen to this album until getting ready for today's conversation, even though, and this is the embarrassing part, is that I certainly knew about the reissue back in 06 because I was, you know, Light in the Attic was on my radar and I was working with them. I just don't think I ever bothered to actually listen to it. And it maybe because I heard it was like a, a like a lost folk album, which at the time was not a phrase that was going to inherently appeal to me. <laughs> sure, um, yeah, understandably. But, but that said, I mean, I I feel bad for myself because I really have I've wasted the last thirteen years in which I could have been listening to this um, sooner. Because, and this goes back to something Jason you were saying is. That voice is so distinctive, and it's what really grabs you. And even though the track, the first song in the album, which is um, something on your mind, and we'll talk about this later, is I think for me at least, it's definitely one of my favorite songs. When I when I first put this album on earlier in the week, I was kind of listening at the middle distance, and so it wasn't until her cover of "When a Man Loves a Woman" comes on, right. and then I turned my head and was like, "What the hell is this?" Right. Yeah. It's so, and I mean this in the best possible way, it just sounds like such a weird cover of, of a, a standard from the kind of Motown 60s era of soul music that you just don't expect to hear it like in this particular fashion. And I immediately thought about, as a point of comparison, uh, you know, if this we're talking about 1971, this would have been around the same time that Laura Nairo and LaBelle put out their kind of Motown era cover album. Uh, which includes, for example, we can take a listen to uh, Nairo and LaBelle doing Jimmy Mac, but just listen to the differences in voice between what you just heard from Dalton versus Nairo's take. Jimmy, oh Jimmy Mac, when are you coming back? Jimmy, can you hear me? Jimmy, oh Jimmy Mac, you better hurry back. He calls me on the phone. And of course, Nairo and LaBelle's It's Going to Take a Miracle LP was a, a, a hit. I don't think one can really say the same thing about Dalton's album. And really listening to that particular cover, the first thing that came to mind is, well, I can kind of see why this probably didn't burn up the Billboard charts back in 71. It's sure. because yeah, absolutely. Like, you encounter that voice and that the, the take that she has on that that song. It's like, like, what is this? This is so weird. But in a again, to your point, Jason, in a way that I think is completely enrapturing. 
Yeah, there's on the like the I think if you look up the digital version of this record, there are some some alternate takes. Yeah, yeah. And and in the alternate takes, she's way more subdued. Mm. Like they're all they're all like way pulled back. A couple of them I think are even in a lower register and a little bit less like they don't crack the way her voice does on the the final versions. Yeah. I could see like the way in which those maybe more like toned down versions are the more like correct versions. Right. You know what I mean? Like they're the more um palatable. They're yeah, they're, they're like what you the, the all the things that you uh think to yourself, okay, well we it, it needs to cert- kind of be in this key and we need to play to her strength and all this stuff. But I'm so glad that they didn't go that route because it's it's how like not safe for radio her voice is that yeah. makes the record such a powerful thing. Once you kind of understand where she's coming from, you stop hearing like the the sharpness of it, and you start hearing all the emotion. There was a tribute record to Karen. Um, with a bunch of great artists, um, and one of my favorite writers, Amanda Petrogish, she oh, yeah. she compared. People always compare Karen's voice to Billie Holiday, mm-hmm. and I understand why. She compared her voice to Kurt Cobain and Axl Rose, and I was mm. like, "What a what a perfect sort of description!" Because it is sort of that like raw, unhinged quality that um, really sets this record apart. I think. This might be another tangent, but it also occurs to me that if this album had been a much, much bigger hit, if it had, if it had done for her what Janis Joplin's work had done for, for Joplin in the same era, would we feel differently about it? Because I always feel like Joplin kind of gets that gentrification, you know, label, you know, appropriation, yeah. <laughs> you know, thrown on, and, and sure. not, not unfairly. And do we kind of give Dalton a pass on this simply because no one remembers her, unlike Joplin, who gets all of this praise and attention, you know, heaped? That's a good question. That's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we we might, you know. Um, I I certainly think that that's like a that that the 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 way that we hear music is, like I said earlier, so often informed by the the story that that yeah. accompanies it. You know, right, right. Janis Joplin was huge. You know, Janis Joplin was a star. But I also feel like there's a certain, I mean, Janice was raw and Janice was like absolutely a powerhouse singer. Karen's voice, it has like, there's another quality in there. She's not a belter. She's not a belter at all. Not a belter. And and I feel like maybe um, there's a certain thing that happens when some people try to sing the blues. Um, I don't know a technical term to describe it, but a sort of like persona adoption thing yes. that goes on and, and and i don't think karen does that um she, she's too weird right. she's too unique you know it, have you have both of you seen ghost world you're gonna say blues hammer blues right, hammer, no, right? Blues, it's the blues hammer scene so joplin is blues is the blues hammer scene blues hammer was the term i was going to say <laughs> and i was like i don't know if it's okay for me and, to and bring dalton up is who Buscemi's character is actually maybe writing for or it's 
no, more you're right. likely to write for. No, 100%. You know? Steve Buscemi's character in Ghost World, <laughs> his weird Robert Crumb ass is totally into Dalton, Karen but, Dalton, but, but he yeah, hates Janis Joplin. That's, that's, yeah, I think, I think we just nailed it here. <laughs> just give me a minute. <laughs> Don't go away. We got Blues Hammer coming up in just a minute. Oh, if you like authentic blues, uh, you really got to check out Blues Hammer. They're so great. All right, people, are you ready to boogie? Because we're going to play some authentic way down in the Delta Blues. So get ready to rock your world. That Blues Hammer scene, I think, really is one of the more underrated, I think, portrayals yeah. of smart music criticism. That needs to go in a best it, American it's so music writing. In terms of 30 seconds tells you all you really need to understand. <laughs> no, it's the, no, you're you're 100% right. Like that's like legitimately <laughs> one of those scenes that, that like that helped uh illustrate a critical point that's really hard to say sometimes, but it, that's perfect. I think when you especially when in prepping for this it's impossible to me, at least, to find anything written about Karen Dalton that doesn't come with a long list of people that she kind of sounds like or people who are more contemporary that sounds like her, which I don't think is unfair, only because when, you have, when you're encountering something this distinctive, right, this unique, I think where your brain goes is to try to find these linkages, however tenuous. And so whether it's Billie Holiday, um, that actually wasn't even really the first person that came to mind. Nina Simone came to mind, only maybe because we had you know taped an sure. episode about Nina recently. Sure. Um, when I first heard that, that very first song, Something on Your Mind, to me it sounded like an Alabama Shakes song in Brittany Howard, except recorded 40 mm. years before we ever heard of Alabama Shakes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Jason, you know, Jan- Joanna Newsom gets compared to her. Um, and it just made me think of other kind of unique, weird voices that have, have remained with this. And Morgan, I know you had some thoughts on this. Uh, Esther Phillips was yes. who came to mind for me. Totally, right. Um, because I think Esther Phillips' voice carries a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, when you get to her cover of um, Home is Where the Hatred Home is. Where the Hatred is. Right, we, which we actually talked about during one of our, if you like this, check out that. I, I don't even remember for who now. But yeah, we, we actually talked about it back then too. That song in particular is just dripping with pain. And her voice to me sounds very uh, like tired and I've been through it. And I am a, um, you know, I can really bear witness to what I'm talking about. I'm not, this wasn't just a song chosen for me. I'm experiencing it. This is a lived situation. Yeah. Junkie walking through the twilight I'm on my way home I left three days ago But no one seems to know I'm gone I mean, I think Philip's voice is more technically precise because she has a long background in jazz singing it's not as raw in the way that we've been talking about. But yeah, I think to your point, though, around what you hear in the voice, there's so much that gets carried in there. Yep. Morgan, besides Esther Phillips, anyone else that comes to mind in terms of distinct voices that you that you feel like listening to Karen triggers kind of this uh, a, a thought of someone else? Well, the first name that came to mind for me before Esther Phillips was Angela McCluskey of Telepop Music. Mm. And they sound almost identical mm. on a song that Angela has called it's been done. Here my The moment I could win 
that rasp, which makes me think of Macy Gray too. Yep. So he, yet, yet another artist that comes to mind. Yep. Yeah, and that little bit of flutter mm-hmm. um, in the voices. If you take away the electronica and whatever year that that came out, and she was slowed down, it would be like listening to Karen Dalton again. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of you know. Uh, voices in that in that family, but Angela McCluskey came to mind. Mm-hmm. I think you know we were going to talk about weird voices and voices that don't sound like anybody else. And of course, the first person that came to mind was Tiny Tim. <laughs> oh man, tiptoe through the does, tulips. Maybe not, does not remind you of. He of does Karen not Dalton, remind but, me of Karen Dalton. But certainly but he, distinct. If, distinct. If we're going to take it there. <laughs> need to get our dude Chris Melanthi back on here just to explain how did that song ever become a hit? A huge, a gigantic yeah. hit. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the thing about those voices, like voices like that, that that don't sound like anything else, is we're so conditioned to listen for certain qualities in yeah. in, in, in in pop music or or just you know things we're hearing. Um, right. I think that one of the things that happened was you know the behind the scenes stuff. I know is that um, there was some discussion when Light in the Attic wanted to take this project on about essentially a, a covers record, you know, like what is it that makes Karen Dalton an unheralded pioneer? She yeah. just recorded a bunch of other people's songs. And I think that that view... Um, so rockist. It's a rockist it's so view. Rockist. And it's, yeah. it's, it's like a singer-songwriter centered yeah. as like the right. ideal. And I really think it's important to note that one of the things that uh, Peter Walker, the guitarist and 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 songwriter, who is a, a real close friend of Karen's, he writes in uh, a book that he'd self-published about her that Karen really viewed herself as in the lineage of of folk and blues singers, um, for whom it's authorship like, is secondary. authorship is is very much secondary. Right. You're, it's, you're it's, singing standards. You're singing folk tunes that have been handed out through generations. Who original authorship is not even known at that point. That's right. exactly right. And and so when you're when you're putting together a, a repertoire like that, when you're putting together a body of work where you know other people's words are just as important as as your own potential words, you know, or in the case of Karen. You're taking words that somebody else wrote, and you're finding the emotionality in them. Right. Um, that is obviously the key to a good cover. We all understand that from even a rockist standpoint. Yeah. You know, you have yeah. to make it your own. Right. But she was interested in doing that on the two records that she recorded. Featured none of her own original compositions, and she had a few, but they're not on these. She's finding in these standards and in these, at the time, fairly recent pop hits. Um, She's finding in those like uh, an avenue to express really some of the deepest stuff that a person can express. So, I mean, it really takes that whole that whole authorship thing. It's just like a it's a dead end street in a lot of ways. Um, and I think all of her contemporaries, Bob Dylan gets brought up an awful lot and certainly is probably why that raucous trope even exists. Sure. Right. But sure. you look at that guy and he spent his early career singing ballads yeah. and and folk songs and he spent his last decade singing like sinatra songs you know so i mean interpretation is a key part of what karen's doing she viewed herself as a song a song stylist as much as as a performer you know right and 
we, we brought this up when we were talking uh, in a previous episode. Aretha Franklin did not write most of her own music. Sure. And I'm not saying that Karen's at the same level of Aretha, but we don't really, no one really stops and says, well, you know, Aretha didn't really, you know, Carol King wrote that song for Aretha. Aretha Whoa. didn't write that herself. No one cares. You know why? Because Aretha was incredible as a performer, as a singer, as an interpreter. Yeah, John Coltrane didn't write my favorite things, but I mean, if, right. if you, you, nobody's ever going to deny the, the, explosion of like feeling and emotion and spirituality that he brings to it. Sure, but in Aretha's case, it's just not even fair because whatever she covers, you just forget who, who whoever wrote it is immaterial. You're like, I'm glad okay. she didn't cover, I'm glad she didn't do some things on my mind. Right, because uh, then, then, then we like, Karen who? Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even fair, but I was going to say in terms of her interpreting, you know, the words of others, you know, the question is, does that contribute to some of the sadness on this album? Because you're covering you know, in the station, and that's mm-hmm. Manuel, who himself suffered from substance abuse and depression. Yeah. To, to what extent are you bringing, you know, the ghosts of trauma past onto this album because of some of the people whose words you're interpreting? Yeah, I think that's clearly what she was drawn to in their in their words. She's honing in on those expressions of, of like, loneliness and, sure. and like, real pain and... Um, mm. um, you know, and I so I think that she was in in gathering her material, and she worked with the producer here, uh, Michael Brooks or Harvey Brooks. I'm Harvey sorry, Brooks, yeah. Um, she worked with him, to, and like he was bringing her songs, and she was saying no, no, yes, no. And so I think that clearly what she said yes to was the stuff that she was able to hear and read into those those texts, like mm-hmm. the stuff that mattered to her and i think that that and that ver- the version of in a station on this record is like Oof. it's mind-blowing wonder could you ever know me know the reason why i live is there nothing you can show me life seems so little to be I mean, seriously, I get such strong Nina vibes. Yeah, yeah I hear that for about sure. Life story about the same era, about some of the musical uh, production elements to it, as opposed to reaching back to. I mean, what, what was a nickname for Karen Dalton? The Hillbilly Holiday, which. <laughs> oh my God! That pun number one and number two. <laughs> who wrote that? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> but you know, why? Why would you even need to go back to compare to someone whose whose main heyday was? You know, 40 years prior to this, as opposed to a contemporary like Nina Simone, in which both of them are doing like incredible interpretive work that's right. filled with a lot of pain. You know, a all lot those of things. pain. Yeah. Yeah. Nina's definitely, I think, a very close parallel. Um, and I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's such a, yeah. And, and, and why, why was Billie Holiday the touchstone? I mean, I think it probably goes back to the weird arguments about what makes somebody an authentic singer, mm-hmm. an authentic mm-hmm. voice. And, and, and don't get me wrong, right? And Billie Holiday is the is she is authentic and she is powerful. But apparently, Dalton wasn't a big fan of the comparison mm. that some people say. Oh, that I'm she sure. Wasn't. I, what singer likes to be compared constantly to somebody else? Like, who wants to be called the hillbilly anything? Right. You know. Right. That said, though, before we go into our break, let's take a listen to this, which is a live performance by Dalton, recorded in I think '69 or '70 by a French film crew that was, I'm assuming, doing some kind of documentary around um, the folk scene and managed to record a 19-year-old Karen Dalton singing some Billie Holiday. Then that scotch shall get Then that ain't will do 
We will be back with more of our conversation about Karen Dalton's In My Own Time with special guest Jason Woodbury after a word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Courtney Enlow. I'm Brent Black, and we're the hosts of Trends Like These. Trends Like These is an internet news show where we take the stories trending on social media and go beyond the headlines. We'll give you the actual facts of the story and not just the knee-jerk reactions. Plus, we end every episode with a ray of hope that we call the Wi-Fi of the week. So join us every Friday on Maximum Fun. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Trends Like These. Real-life friends talking internet trends. Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My Uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for Maximum Fun. And we are back on Heat Rocks, talking Karen Dalton and In My Own Time with Jason Woodbury of Aquarium Drunkard. We've been talking a lot about, obviously, Karen Dalton's voice, but I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about just the music and the production on this album, because it's not like it's just her standing up there and doing an acoustic set. Like, the music on this is fantastic. And Indeed. Jason, you mean, you've been mentioning that uh, this was produced by bassist Harvey Brooks, who had played with Dylan, played with The Doors, uh, Miles Davis. So he certainly, I think, was very conversant in the variety of different styles that I think you also see reflected in the song choices on here. And I couldn't help but notice that this album was originally released, I guess it was a joint release between Paramount, but also Just Sunshine, which was the record label started by Michael Lang, who uh, put out uh, Woodstock. You're going to be hearing his name a lot <laughs> later this year because of the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Mm, not to mention the Woodstock 50. Yes, that too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and this is the same label that a couple years after releasing this Karen Dalton album, like I think in 73 or 74, put out, of course, uh, Betty Davis. And so Just Sunshine seemed to have a thing for like quirky female uh, <laughs> genreless artists uh, of that era. But yeah, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the fact that this was a really good team of players and well-produced. And this is not an album that is you know, again, it's not just someone standing in the studio with a, with a 12-string. This is a fully well-produced, studio-sessioned uh, album, and I think it really it, it's rich for that, those, those qualities. Yeah, her previous record, um, it's so hard to tell who's going to love you best, mm-hmm. which I think did come out in 69. That's more like what you're talking about. That's more of a, a spare. There's, there's some playing on that as well, but it's a little bit, it's a lot more sort of um, stripped down. Yeah. And I think it was like snuck in to another session, you know, in the middle of the night or something. This very clearly, she's working with a pretty killer band. Everybody's playing amazingly on it. Um, beyond Brooks's bass playing, which is, really one of my favorite elements of the record it Mm -hmm. opens with his bass um and the tone of his bass it it like uh, it's it's one of the it gives me goosebumps like every time the way it comes in on this sort of like almost like a strumming drone (laughs) 
there's a lot of R&B and soul on this record. Sure. Um, and I think that helps um, sort of, you know, break it out a little bit of the, the, the folk designation right. as strictly as one might apply it. But there's country on it, too. Sure. There's gospel, as you mentioned, Morgan. Indeed. Um, and then, of course, a blues element as well. Very heavy on yeah. the blues. You can't make it without I mean, one of my favorite songs on here is the song Take Me, which is, Oof. I think, a great example of that. It would be just like spring in California The day you say you'll be mine So, in terms of... Uh, instrumentation on this album of course you got karen dalton on vocals banjo shout out to banjo um that doesn't get brought up a lot on heat rocks shout out to banjo okay richard bell on piano um jason already mentioned harvey brooks um bass and arrangements amos garrett on guitar john hall guitar solo on in my own dream daniel hankin on guitar bill keith pedal steel guitar that's come up on another episode and did rafael sadiq bring up pedal steel guitar what was he talking about whatever instrument we've We've put in the background. Oh, what, 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 which instrument was it? Was it pedal skill? No, no, it was the thumb piano. Thumb piano. We, we've, yeah, we've gotten heavy into kalimba of late <laughs> on the show. There's no kalimba on this album, but shout out That's to kalimba. That's what this needed. They needed kalimba. On exactly. Here. That would have been taking it extra. To that next level. Um, John Simon on piano, Greg Thomas drums, Dennis Witted drums, Bobby Notkoff violin, Hart McGee tenor saxophone, Marcus Doubleday trumpet, and Robert Fritz clarinet. Shout out to all those musicians that made these 10 tracks um, come to life. Yeah, the pedal steel is such a such a fascinating element of this record. And it is a, one of those sounds that, due to whatever kind of weird record industry politics, was mostly considered a country instrument. Right. But you hear it on this record, and it, and it and it fits right in there so beautifully. I don't, yeah. I don't know. And if I'm not mistaken, pedal steel came from Hawaii, so it's not like its roots are necessarily particularly white to begin with anyway. Sure. So. No, absolutely. You're right. you're right. Or maybe I'm thinking of the slide guitar, which is similar. But well, not, they're, not you have like lap steel. It's, right. it's like a whole thing into itself. I'm sure there's some. Yeah. Either way, Kalimba's not on here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Whatever else is on here, Kalimba's right. not. Shout out to Kalimba. Somewhere, if you just show While we're talking about Take Me, the other thing worth noting that this is a cover song, and it's a cover song of a George Jones and Tammy Wynette original. Take me to your most barren desert A thousand miles from the nearest sea The very moment I saw your smile it would be like heaven to me. There's no- so, Jason, if you had to pick a fire track off of this LP, what would you go with? You know, there, I love so many songs on this record, but I'd have to go with something on your mind. I mean, yeah. it's just like, it's the one that for me just speaks 
to the kind of magic that this record holds. And it's so late night sounding. It's yeah. so like spooky. And, it's but, a great album opener too. It's a oh, great first track. I mean, again, like I said, the way that that bass drone comes in and, and there's a restraint to it, lyrically, uh, sonically, like that's the one for me that that if I if I, I that's the fire track. Yeah. Um, there's lots of great songs on this record, but that's the so one many. that that I think is probably gonna like kind of live forever. It's this is tough for me too because I think I have an A one and A B choice here, but. This something on your mind, especially because it is that first song off of this album. My favorite moment off the album comes about 20 seconds into the song, which is right after you first hear Dalton's voice and you already have that like, wait, what is this? And it's also right when the chords change. Yesterday, any way you made it was good. So yeah, just the just how this song opens, and when you first get introduced to her voice, to me, this is just the moment that I just I love, love, love on this particular LP. Either of you have uh, a favorite moment, or or Morgan, you have a fire track and a favorite moment. Yes, um, my favorite track is "One Night of Love." Mm. Um, that's by Joe Tate of the Soul Searchers, um, but I love it because I think it's. Um, this is a lazy adjective, but I think it's thick. Yeah, it's a uh, it's different than the rest of the songs on there because it's to me it's fuller than the rest of the songs on there. It brings something more to the table, and I kept going back to that one. I thought I think I've been spoiled because I came to um, the title track through somebody else, mm-hmm. and so I'm not going to say I prefer that version, but it didn't make this track the favorite. But if sure. we could hear a little bit of One Night of Love. There's more people involved. It feels like there's more people involved on that song, that it's not just Karen. And I think that at parts this album gets so heavy that I want to go a little bit more up-tempo, and this gave me that. Jason, I think you have a favorite moment off this LB too, and it goes back to one of the things that Morgan just said about shouting out the banjo. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think same old man is a really interesting case, and and I think it's maybe my favorite moment uh, in a weird way for the exact opposite of what you liked about having everybody on that track. Right. This is where it feels like it's just her, yeah. and maybe it's like similar to what we would have seen her do on some you know folk club stage in in Greenwich Village or something but there's an oddly avant-garde feel to this one there's a little bit of a drone going on and I think it reminds me of the connection between like say Appalachian music Mm. Mm. and the more like avant-garde stuff of you know guys like uh Harry Parch or something like that where you you realize that there's this like the thing that really gets me about this record in general is the kind of cultural conversation that's happening on it between all these different forms. And you hear her do this uh, kind of almost angular, weird Appalachian banjo raga 
and and you're reminded like oh yeah like this stuff's all connected like it's it's yeah. it's not it's not the 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 song forms or the idioms that are actually divided it's it's people deciding what category something goes in versus another. So sure. to me, that's like a weird, spooky seance of a song that just feels so. Mm. Uh, just I just really like it. It weirds me out, and it and it puts me in such a strange state of mind. Uh, mm. I really appreciate that about it. The other song I, I mentioned earlier that uh, it was hard for me to pick my absolute favorite because there's really two songs in contention and maybe appropriately enough, they're the first song and the last song mm-hmm. in the album. And the last song being Are You Leaving for the Country, which Ooh. was a song written by Dalton's then husband, Richard Tucker. And this goes back to a point you were making earlier, Jason, that people describe this as a song of covers, but in this case, I'm pretty sure no one else had recorded Are You Leaving for the Country. I mean, no. her husband wrote the song, so right. she was probably the first person to perform it. So even if, if she didn't get writing credit for her, it's still more or less her song. And I don't want to get too far off on that part. It is such a beautiful, mm-hmm. it's such a haunting, um, it is such an alluring tune, and especially as the last song that you that it leaves you with it just really lingers in this incredibly sublime way. Are you leaving for the country? I know a little country town Where dogs are sleeping in the cold And the flagpole's falling down I mean, I'm a city boy, but this song's got me ready to Head out. Move out there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably not for long. Just a visit. I'd still come back, but it's enough. Are it you leaving for the country, parentheses, for a short, yeah. A yeah. short for, stint? For, for a vacation. Right. Are you leaving yeah. for a short stint in the country? I don't think yeah. that's what Karen meant, though. No. But there is so much longing and a, a, sort of a subdued wailing in her voice. Yeah. Do you feel like something's not real? Let the spirit move. There's a photo of her and her then husband singing uh, with Bob Dylan. Oh. Uh, that's like in I think it's in one of the I think the first the first album in the like the liners when mm-hmm. it was reissued. Yeah, um, and I think I mean, she sang a lot with him as a as a duo. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so so. Again, it gets to that thing you were saying where it's not, you know, maybe she didn't write the words down, but right. you get a sense that she's in the song yeah. in sure. such a real way. Yeah. And she sings that one with such a particular, um, like a, a particular sadness. Yes, yeah. You know, and I don't, I, they didn't, they didn't stay married. So there's sort of a, there's a, the leaving is, is, is very accentuated right. in that song. Someone went to the country, but not both of them. Right. So, <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. 
as we are recording uh, this, we are also getting some tweets about this. And one of them came from Bent Sirota that said, Go find her live album, Cotton Eyed Joe. It is paint peeling, dark night of the soul stuff. Any thoughts about Cotton Eyed Joe? Man, it's 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 incredible. Um, it was recorded, I believe, at the Attic, uh, which was a club in um, Colorado, and I would absolutely recommend tracking that down because okay. it's 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 very very. There's a box set coming out, supposed to be coming out this year. Oh. Um, you can check out the fine folks at Forced Exposure. They mm-hmm. have a they have a listing for it that includes. That live set for the first time on vinyl, and I believe a set, another live thing on vinyl as well for the first time. So her live stuff, there's there's like as much of it as there is studio records. Sure. Um, just by virtue of the fact that she hated going into the studio. She hated to record. She had to be like absolutely, she had to have her arm twisted to go in mm-hmm. and record anything. She mm-hmm. hated it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. live, I think she was maybe more comfortable, although from what I understand, she didn't love playing live either. There's a really great there's a really great quote you can find where somebody said something to the tune of her ideal concert would be a couple thousand people um that were dead silent that she could turn away from and play with her back to them. Like that was her wow. ideal. So she wanted people to hear her music. Right. She didn't want to deal with any of the Ex, like extemporaneous, like any of the other elements that come along with right. that. She didn't want to, she wasn't a particularly social person. She wasn't a particularly outgoing person. She did want people to hear what she did. So I think she would be very gratified to know that there has been a tremendous resurgence in people mm, paying attention. Mm. She, she wasn't wired to, to, to go the, the pop right. star route in any, in any way. She wasn't even wired to go the rock star route, you know? So, uh, that's a tough place to be in, but, I think it speaks to her particular temperament. What does this album tell us about Karen, besides the stuff that's written about her, besides the stuff that we've heard about her? What does this album tell people about Karen that they might, in your in your opinion, what, what should this tell people about Karen that they might not know? I think that what this album says about Karen, first and foremost, is how she viewed music and American music particularly as sort of a continuum and how she was like very interested in fashioning her idea of a canon, you know, a canon that was, for the time, you know, we're talking the early 70s, late 60s, so there's lots of cross-genre pollination happening. There's lots of Mm -hmm. psychedelic music incorporating folk music Mm -hmm. and and, and the other way around and all this stuff. I think her um, distillation of all these disparate genres is a lot more holistic and a lot more emotionally rooted. So I think that what this record says about her that I think isn't always touched on in the sad stories of her, sure. her, her very, you know, kind of brutal existence is how I think she was interested in crafting an American folk music canon that was inclusive of pop and blues and soul and R&B and country and that to her, none of these things were necessarily different things. They're all tributaries of the same sort of river. And I think that as a, um, I'm going to use a word that gets used a lot, but as a curator, I think she had a lot of um, mm. very defined sensibilities. Mm. And I don't think that you often hear the word curator thrown around about Karen Dalton, but mm-hmm. I think she was a pretty masterful one. Mm. 
Well, if you had to describe this album uh, in my own time in three words, Jason, what would you go with? I'd say haunting. Mm. Um, I'd say empathetic and first and foremost, brave. Mm. She was willing to just like put it all out there. She was sure. willing to, with that, you know, completely unique rasp, she, she put it all on the line and she was unafraid to, to like I said, go places that people don't want to go and go there in a way that most people don't choose to go. Yeah. Um, mm. She was pretty, uh, mm. yeah, she was pretty Karen Dalton about the whole thing. <laughs> If you liked this week's album, which of course was Karen Dalton's In My Own Time, we have some other listening recommendations for you. Jason, would you want to start us off? Yeah, uh, this is an artist that is not exactly like Karen, um, which I guess it'd be hard to find an artist who is exactly like Karen. But I would recommend, um, just because it's the other thing that I've been uh, listening to nonstop alongside Karen yeah. to get ready for this. I'd recommend uh, the self-titled Judy Sill record. Mm. Um, Judy recorded Oof. for Asylum Records and um, similar to Karen, uh, sort of lived like a rough life mm-hmm. a little Very bit. Rough. So I, I, I feel like maybe they're, they're kindred spirits in that regard. Um, musically, it's a different thing, but it's very similarly... Um, like cosmic in an earthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Judy's like one of my favorite voices, one of my favorite songwriters, one of my favorite people to speak about the weird mysteries of faith yeah. in a completely uh, idiosyncratic way. Yeah. And so I would recommend Judy Sill. Um, so yeah, check out uh, check out uh, Jesus Was a Crossmaker or uh, Crayon, Crayon Angels or something like that. I would go with Valerie June's debut album from 2013, Pushing Against a Stone. Another incredibly distinctive voice. And I think what really seals it, it's not just about the, the voice, but really that on June's album, you have this mix between, you know, Appalachian folk and Southern blues and rock and soul influences in a way that I think is to be very reminiscent of what Dalton does in her album. My pick would be Big Mama Thornton, mm. Sassy Mama, going mm. back to 1977. Uh, that's blues, Texas blues, West Coast blues, juke joint blues, similar sad circumstances. So while we're in the, with the exception of Valerie June, who's off to a great life. Yes, yeah. She's uh, doing good. Just she's, she's, be clear. So far, yeah. so good. Yeah. Big Mama Thornton carried with her um, not just the sadness, not just the sadness of coming of age and coming to prominence in her time. But but having her songs reinterpreted on a very mass massive level and not seeing the proceeds and mm-hmm. this is a little bit late in her career, but you hear much like her live album, you hear the pain, you hear 
the regret. You hear the sadness. And this reminds me of Karen Dalton. Sweet little Lane. I love the way he spreads away. And on that note, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Jason Woodbury. Plug what you're working on. Where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Jason P. Woodbury. I think I'm on most social media, just Jason P. Woodbury. But of course, check out AquariumDrunkard.com. Please check that out. Right. Um, in your monthly podcast. Yeah, check out Transmissions, Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Tune in, Stitcher, all the the stuff. We do sort of monthly um, like sets of interviews and and weird conversations and, and playlists and kind of whatever is uh, floating our boat. And uh, and you can check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. Uh, search patreon.com backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Uh, we're completely uh, independent at this point, and uh, independent media is not particularly uh, easy to sustain. Nope. So nope. so if you're at all interested in what we do at Aquarium Drunkard, go to the Patreon and chip in. You get free cool stuff. We're working on a lot of really cool physical items, but on top of that, you get you know bonus playlists and notes and all sorts of cool stuff. I have to I have to uh, shout out Aquarium Drunkard because when I discovered it, and I think I discovered it four years ago, um, it was just like it was just like walking into a library of music information. So thank you for all the all of the content there. It has really been been helpful to me, and um, there's just some interesting factoids and pieces on there for music fans and music junkies and music nerds and I, I very rarely refer to myself as, as a nerd uh, but uh, that site made me nerd out so thank you for it well along similar lines because Aquarium Drunkard and Soulside started really around the same the same time so we were very much familiar with one another uh, throughout the golden era of blogging which now feels like a very long time ago <laughs> of the first decade of t- the 2000s and in fact I had kind of forgotten this but we had collaborated in I think 2010 on a gospel funk mixtape which I went to see if the link was still up but alas the link was it was a, it was uploaded to the media fire which oh my like, god RIP <laughs> to all of those like upload sites which came and yeah. went uh, in the pre SoundCloud and whatever era and it just reminded me that I should probably either try to see if I still even have a copy of that or maybe we just need to do a volume two let so. me get that though yeah, if yeah. The, let me get that is though. the track list still on the site if the track list is still okay, up there so yeah. we can it, yeah. it can be it can be stitched yeah, together there you go. send me those hits though you know how I feel about gospel You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where you might be able to find one night of love, or at least someone with something on their mind. One last thing, here is a teaser for next week's episode, which features guest Luz Mendoza of Ila Bamba talking with Morgan and I about Nina Simone's 1969 album, To Love Somebody. I'm wondering for you, especially as a singer, but also as a songwriter, listening to this, whether it was the first time or, or revisiting it now, all these years later, 
What do you take from Nina Simone that might have some influence on your own craft? Vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, honesty, transparency, no fucking around. I mean, no no messing around. You can swear. It's all right. Um, just to the point, really talking about real issues. When I'm faced or when I'm in the presence of such a strong energy, if I'm listening to music or reading about her or just thinking of her, um, I really, I feel like familiar. Yeah. It's a, fam- a familiarity. It encourages me on my path and it's just this really raw honesty that it's like I don't want it's like beyond the word appreciating 